You're listening to Sustainability Inc., a new limited series podcast from Boston Consulting Group, produced by Fortune Brand Studio. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fortune. Hello, I'm Gaia Vince, host of Sustainability Inc. Throughout the 12 episodes in our series, we'll be delving into the innovative, inspiring missions of leading executives and employees at top companies around the globe who are on the front lines of achieving real climate impact. With the stakes higher than ever and the opportunity to make a difference greater than ever, these stories will surely inspire business leaders around the world to join the urgent fight for true sustainability. The amazing thing about our incredible living biosphere is that everything in it, all the resources used and waste produced, the carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, water, minerals, they are all continually recycled. Only sunlight is added to this beautifully balanced and regenerative natural system. But humans have upset this balance, and today our activities are pushing those natural systems beyond their recycling capability. We're releasing carbon dioxide emissions faster than the world's vegetation can suck it back up. And that's changing the temperature of the atmosphere and destroying ecosystems from soils to forests to coral reefs. But one of the greatest tools that we have to fight our way out of this mess is to harness nature itself. By improving the health and resilience of natural systems, we can let nature do her thing and start restoring the balance that we all depend on. In this episode, we speak to leaders and innovators working across diverse spaces, from agriculture to the oceans, to better understand the most effective and cutting-edge nature-based solutions for our global environmental issues. Joining me is Anders Porsberg-Smith, Managing Director and Partner at Boston Consulting Group. Welcome, Anders. What exactly are we talking about when we talk about nature-based solutions? What we're talking about when we talk about nature-based solutions is the cultivation of forestry, different agricultural practices, or it could be wetland-based. So it's a broad definition covering the different aspects of natural systems and the sequestration of carbon in those systems. So it's really us tapping into that amazing job that the biosphere does naturally which is circulate all the minerals and nutrients, chemicals, and the carbon that naturally goes around the world from the atmosphere to the deep oceans to living creatures like us and trees and so on. So you have a tree and through the natural life cycle of the tree will sequester carbon. There's a natural process, of course, when the trees eventually either dies or gets cut, it decomposes and releases the carbon back into the atmosphere. When we're thinking about offsetting, we're thinking about carbon markets and and carbon market-based schemes in the sense that we are ordering the abatement curve from the lowest abatement to the highest abatement, and we're trying to go after the lowest abatement. There will be industries, I mean, if you look at aviation, we look at marine, we look at even oil and gas, where the abatement curve is incredibly exponential, right? You very quickly have exhausted what can be done naturally through decarbonization, and you're left with the daunting task of decarbonizing what will eventually mean volume reduction, right? So not growing the portfolio or eventually divesting the portfolio. So basically lowering your activity level. 
And I think for those industries, getting to a net zero will be incredibly expensive or incredibly difficult, whereas we have other industries that provide better opportunities. So the concept of different value chains trading with each other or borrowing credits while you're developing technology to be able to lower your abatement cost curve or to find bridges between the timing of it, I think is inherently elegant. But does it really have a meaningful impact? The food system globally is responsible for about one third of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. And 80% of that comes from agriculture. So agriculture has an enormous role to play when it comes to combating climate change, as does finding better ways to store carbon. Mary Jane Melendez, Chief Sustainability and Global Impact Officer at General Mills, spoke to us about the role regenerative agriculture has to play in this system. This means restoring and supporting the soil's natural nutrient recycling function through techniques like mulching and reducing damaging tillage. We were one of the first companies to make a pretty bold commitment to advance regenerative agriculture. When you look across our whole emissions footprint, 60% of our footprint come from 10 key ingredient categories that we source. So if we don't get after regenerative agriculture and advancing that work as one of the levers that we can pull to help reduce greenhouse gas emissions, take carbon out of the atmosphere, healthy soils, healthy living roots, bring that carbon back into the soil where it's feeding and nourishing a network of life underneath, that's why regenerative agriculture is so critically important because we are counting on that lever to actually help us to achieve our broader greenhouse gas emissions footprint across our company. As Mary Jane mentioned, improving soil health through regenerative agriculture has huge potential to store carbon. And it has far wider benefits too. I spoke to Chuck Liederkirk, co-founder and CEO of Soil Capital. Europe's first certified multinational carbon farming program. So instead of soils becoming a carbon store, they're actually starting to release carbon. And in other ways, agriculture is using a lot of fertilizers. And so there are greenhouse gas emissions involved in that. So nature-based solutions, how do these work? We've considered our soil as a simple substrate rather than as a living organism that has very deep connections to the plant. And it's not only the soil feeding the plant, but the plants feed the soil. And when you look at the way that plants function through photosynthesis, what's often not said is that part of the carbon that is captured through photosynthesis is released through root exudates in the form of simple or more complex sugars to actually feed a universe of microbiology in the soil. And so we're now making headway into understanding what those interactions between soil and plant are and how they can actually contribute to developing more healthy farming systems and how they can deliver the profitability that farmers are seeking while delivering environmental outcomes that are fantastically important to the planet. When it comes to agriculture, environmental outcomes and profitability are aligned. And there is a huge misconception today in the mind of the farmers, in the mind of the public, in the mind of policymakers, that between profitability and the environment, you need to make a choice. Well, there's actually a very strong case to be made about storing more carbon for the health of the soil, for the health of the plant, for the economic health of the farmer and for the health of the crops and the consumers. 
The way we do this is farmers will enter our five-year program. In year zero, the farmer will run a baseline assessment of his carbon emissions on his farm. And every year after that, the farmer will run a progress assessment to see how he's faring relative to that baseline. The cost of that assessment is paid by the farmer to us. Then from year one onwards, every time the farmer improves on his emissions relative to his baseline, the farmer will earn an income per tons of greenhouse gases or CO2 equivalent that he's actually saved. I mean, yeah, farming is in crisis around the world for various reasons. One of the reasons being that the soil and the whole ecosystem around it has not been valued as it should. It's not been financially valued. I'm very interested, though, in this route that you took from conventional finance towards this agriculture-based finance. What we like to say is the carbon income for a farmer is a cherry on a much bigger economic cake. What we're really trying to do with Soil Capital is allow farmers to understand beyond the carbon revenue what they also stand to make. Farmers really are at the root of this whole transformation. Here's Mary Jane again. At General Mills, we have been on this journey since about 2014, learning about the power of soil health. And we were being educated by farmers who had been using regenerative agriculture practices on their own farmland. We started to understand interdependencies of things like water and soil and biodiversity and what happens when you're integrating animals and livestock on the land and what that does for soil health. We were learning things like the importance of keeping living roots in the ground for as long as we possibly can. And it was very interesting. We took our CEO and a number of our senior leaders and employees out to a regenerative farm in Redwood Falls, Minnesota. And we literally stood with one foot on this regenerative farm that we were visiting, and then we were standing next to a conventional farm. And the regenerative farm, it was teeming with life. And there were so many different types of crops because diversity is one of the principles of regenerative agriculture. You just don't want to grow one crop. You want to grow as much as you possibly can because when you're getting more output per acre, more yield, you're actually able to be more profitable as well. And it was amazing also to take a shovel and be able to pull out a piece of the soil on the regenerative farm and it was like chocolate cake. It was full of earthworms and bugs and roots and the soil had aggregates in it and it was moist where the soil next to it was kind of a dull brown color, kind of dry, a little bit powdery, and you go, gosh, no wonder things can't grow there. It's not alive, it's not healthy. Seeing the stark difference between a healthy and an unhealthy ecosystem can be felt on all levels of society. And so too can the solutions. Since the 1970s, half of the world's coral reefs have died. Bahamas, 80% of coral reefs are dead. In the Florida Keys, 95% of them are gone. This is Sam Teicher, co-founder and chief reef officer of Coral Vita, a Bahamas-based company that has been growing corals to revitalise dying reefs since 2015. I think one of the challenges we face in terms of people's understanding is, just like I don't know what reefs used to be like, I only know what they're like now, and people who are now diving in 2021 might not know what they were like even in you know, the early 2000s. I didn't see the Great Barrier Reef until a few years ago, and... Imagine just this beautiful tapestry of colors, of creatures, of shapes. Just honestly, visiting a coral reef for me is almost like imagining being an astronaut and visiting an alien planet, where there are just these absolutely incredible creatures and wondrous things in front of you, only it's often 50 yards offshore. 
I went diving with this man who had been there in the 70s, back when they still were pristine. And I'm swimming over these degraded reefs, and it's pretty tragic. We come up, and the man is basically weeping in his face mask. This is not just some problem for the future. We've known for a long time that climate change is one of the greatest threats to life in the sea, as well as to coral reefs themselves. Changes in our ecosystems happen every day with large shifts in our lifetimes. We can help push change in a positive direction through education and stepping up to do our part and sharing what we learn with everyone from tourists at the reefs to the farmers in the fields. Mary Jane Melendez again. What we learn when we are visiting with a lot of these farmers as they're stepping into pilots with General Mills is a few things. One, a third of their income is coming from government subsidies. And who wants to do that? That is not a sustainable model for most of them. They have significant loans because they've been buying huge pieces of equipment and farming is incredibly expensive. It's expensive to rent land. It's expensive to buy land. And we are not setting our farmers up for long-term sustainable success when we're putting them in that type of financial position. A lot of times the soils that they're managing have so many chemicals that there's too much you know, nitrogen in the soil. And what we have found that's been incredibly powerful is being able to bring in another farmer who's actually walked down that path, who can tell the story to say, yes, I realized I didn't have to put anything else on my soil. So I came down on herbicides and pesticides. I'm reinvesting in things like cover crops. I'm reinvesting and for the first time, I'm putting cattle on my land and I'm having them graze the land here. So we are seeing some promising early outcomes and we wanna to continue to use those case studies and those financial models to help connect the hearts and minds of other farmers who may be on the fence or who maybe don't want to step all the way into this, but how do we help get them on the journey? And so I guess the big question is, because what you saw in those two fields is something that ecologists and biologists have known about for time immemorial, but farmers are not always as easy to convince because when it comes to the bottom line, are they going to lose a lot of profit? Is it going to take a lot more labour? Is it going to hit their bottom line? if they move to regenerative agriculture? It's progress, not perfection. But to invite them in to start making some of these powerful changes, I think is a great opportunity that lies ahead for us. And it doesn't take too long for a farmer to actually notice on his or her property how things are starting to change. The smells are different. The sounds are different. There's more life there. Imagine what's happening underneath the soil when you're starting to see that biodiversity return above the ground. And just like the regenerative farming efforts on large US farms, farmers globally can be brought into the basic ideas and impacts of regenerative farming. Chuck from Soil Capital. We identify five principles for regenerative agriculture. The first one is the minimization or the elimination of synthetic fertilizer. The second one is minimal land disturbance. Every time we plow the land, we upset a whole ecosystem which is fragile and that takes years, sometimes decades, to build up. The third principle is the maximization of soil cover with living plants to prevent erosion, but also to structure the soil with the roots of these plants. The fourth principle is the maximization of biodiversity in time and space. So in time, that means frequent rotations of many different crops but also in space, that means companion crops, so growing two crops at the same time, possibly introducing animals, livestock, into a cropping system. 
or crops into an animal system. We've mapped close to 200 farmers in France, the UK and Belgium. We have hard data that the regenerative farmer performs much better than the conventional farmer. And we're talking hundreds, sometimes 200, 300 euros a hectare better. And when we know that the net revenue of a farmer today is something like 300 euros a hectare in France and Belgium, that sometimes means a doubling of the farmer's net revenue. So it's profitable, but it's also very good for the environment as well, because if you're using fewer fertilisers, there's less risk of those fertilisers being washed into the watershed, into rivers and so on. Now, it must be hard to persuade a farmer who's been using the same traditional methods for perhaps decades to switch to this new method. There's no market today for regenerative agriculture. You can go to the supermarket and you can buy organic produce and you can buy fair trade produce. And that has compelled farmers to farm differently. But there are very few successful and widespread labels for regenerative agriculture today. There are some, they're emerging, and we need more of them. But today, it's still hard to crack. There's growing awareness around carbon. There's a strategic importance to store carbon because the more you have carbon in your soil, the more alive your soil is, the more fertile your soil actually is. We really like carbon because that's a nice proxy for all of the regenerative practices that we're looking for, but it's also a fantastically marketable proxy today. We can sell carbon certificates in the market. And think of this in terms of market disruption. If carbon payments for farmers can prove to society that this farmer is storing this amount of carbon on a net basis, emissions included, on his farm, then he can prove that he's, or she can prove that she's a part of the solution, and that matters just as much as the income. As much as incentivizing regenerative agriculture can do for the climate crisis, a scalable process for reforestation is still necessary which is what Grant Canary, CEO of Droneseed, has set out to do. We've all watched the wildfires that have been increasingly ravaging the United States and blazing through forests. They're only going to become worse and more frequent, more devastating. And after these devastating massive fires, forests can struggle to re-establish. It's really hard to restore, and each time it becomes harder and harder to restore. And that's where you focused your efforts. Tell me about drone seed. The high school biology, forest burns, forest regrows, that needs to be updated. The forests are regrowing less and less. So we end up with 10 foot tall bushes, which are really not as great for carbon capture and mitigating climate change as those beautiful, large, gorgeous forests that we in the West are accustomed to. Ultimately, where Drone Seed got started is, how do we utilize drones? And that was five years ago. We now carry a 57-pound payload, and we operate in swarms of up to five aircraft at a time. These are eight feet diameter, FAA-approved drones. What we do is we utilize heavy-lift drone swarms to reforest after wildfires. We want to drop the seed vessels where they are going to have the highest probability of survival. It's a three-step process. And ultimately, it culminates in two trucks, 
two trailers, six aircraft going out to site run by a crew. And those trucks are carrying pallets of seed vessels that we manufacture and then drop onto the landscape. What's happened in advance is we've gone out with one to two folks. We've operated a LiDAR, which is basically what self-driving cars and others utilize in most cases. And we built a 3D terrain map with a first pass drone survey. We work with tribal nations. We work with timber companies. We work with nonprofits like the Nature Conservancy. We work with state and federal lands. And we work with small family forests. It's not been previously possible for them to reforest within 90 to 180 days. And with drone seed, we are able to do that. One of the most exciting things for us about drone seed is the ability to start connecting carbon credits that are focused on reforestation after wildfire, which is an ecosystem service, air purification, and start to connect those with our human financial systems and really start to place a significant value on it. We're venture capital backed, and that is a deliberate choice because it's the size and scope of climate change. We want to grow big, grow fast, and rise to the challenge of what we're seeing with the exponential increase in wildfire and wildfire acreage burned. There is a new standard that's coming out from Climate Action Reserve. It's a third-party standards organization. Make sure that all of the rules are followed, and when they are followed, they issue the credits. And those are very valuable to companies making carbon neutral or negative pledges. The credits, especially those focused on post-wildfire reforestation, because it's incredibly additional and it's capturing carbon, which is something that is difficult to achieve. We are all facing this terrible crisis of climate change, but you are actually doing something. You're actively making a difference. Trees are not a silver bullet. It will not eliminate climate change. It will not fix it. We are all interdependent upon all the other climate tech companies and efforts to be able to focus on how can we mitigate those worst effects to buy us time while we decarbonize and electrify everything, which absolutely must be done. But trees have the ability to actually capture carbon out of the atmosphere at scale, which is what we need today because so much carbon has been emitted already if people aren't working on climate change or looking for ways that they can. I don't understand how they see a brighter future without us taking action. And time's ticking on action. Once again, here's Sam Teicher. 2030 is this looming deadline to manage the threats of climate change. And we really need to rapidly deploy infrastructure for coral restoration and protection as soon as possible. Just quickly to round up what reefs do, I mean, they provide essential nurseries for fisheries. They are the actual backbone of a lot of islands, like atolls, particularly in the Indian Ocean, and they stop coastal erosion. So let's move to what you're doing, which is really quite incredible. I founded Coral Vita with my friend Gator Halpern to help preserve reefs for future generations. We work in a field called coral reef restoration. Just like you can plant trees to bring degraded and dying forests back to life, we are doing the same only with corals. Our thought was scientifically we can grow corals, we can put them back out into reefs and help revive their health. This was pioneered by our former advisor, Dr. Ruth Gates, truly one of the most inspiring people working in science in every sort and just full not only of warmth, but of vision and recognizing we need to change the game when it comes to keeping corals alive. And there are many scientists around the world who are continuing to work in this field. 
So this is a model that's already underway with terrestrial forests, right? We all know about tree planting companies, but to do it with coral polyps is slightly different. And the scale is obviously essential. Now, the viability of these polyps is key, isn't it? Because quite often what happens is thousands of polyps are planted and then there's a big storm that comes in and they're all washed away or they're bleached or, or they just don't survive. What are you doing to make sure that these have a higher success rate? How are you improving the viability of these coral reefs? One of the things that we focus on, which are land-based farms, as opposed to traditional sort of underwater ocean-based coral gardens, which is often how this work is done, one of the things our land-based farms offer is an ability to control the conditions that our corals are growing in. So we can give the corals the spa treatment, make things very nice and copacetic for them, and they're growing nice and happy, or we can take them to the gym. We can look at what scientific projections are for things that threaten their health, like temperature, and raise the temperature, bring it back down, raise the temperature, bring it back down, stress hard in these corals, which have a natural ability to adapt. Things just in the ocean are deteriorating so quickly they can't keep up. So we not only are able to boost the resilience and survivorship of all the corals that are growing, but we can see which ones are naturally doing the best. And corals make babies. It's kind of akin to pollination. And when it comes time for coral spawning, we can then take the corals that we've seen are naturally doing better when water's warm and crossbreed them so that future corals are gonna be even more resilient. So there's a number of steps we can take, but that helps ensure that the corals have a better chance of surviving once we plant them back out in the ocean. Our ultimate vision is we want large-scale land-based coral farms in every nation with reefs around the world. So the ball's in our court. The challenges are huge, but we can all make a difference to our climate impact right across our ecosystems. Here's Mary Jane reminding us what happens if we don't. There are a lot of things that we are trying to do to mitigate risk. And honestly, today, supply chains globally are so incredibly challenged. There were ice storms in Texas in February that knocked out power grids and that disrupted supply chains where we actually weren't able to get enough ingredients to continue to produce Yoplait yogurt for a period of time. And right now, because of the drought that we have seen over the summer here in the Midwest, we know the oat crop is not going to be what we thought. So we're already trying to figure out, okay, where else are we going to get oats that meet the quality standards that we need to be able to make Cheerios? And it is incredibly challenging because when those oats aren't growing or up to the right quality standards that you expect, it's not only General Mills, it's other companies who are relying on that ingredient source as well. It's all an ecosystem. We're all connected. We need to do our part in this. And we need to demonstrate leadership and encourage other companies who are buying agricultural goods and buying ingredients that are grown from the earth that we all need to be investing in the space and making change. Companies can play a big part in restoring nature through innovations as part of a holistic sustainability strategy. So what does the future hold? Here's Anders. There's a ton of innovation by NGOs or small startups. We typically talk about the services space, which comes with project developers that have tremendous technological expertise in the nature-based space. Right? They understand either agronomics, they understand forestry extremely well, and have been around typically for a very long time and are now growing with the tailwind of capital and need for them and their expertise. Then we see the verification validation bodies, which are typically startups that are incredibly good at using a LiDAR or other sources of satellite technology 
to monitor and to verify that the carbon is actually being sequestered, that we are respecting the boundaries on biodiversity or the project documentation requirements in the space. And then lastly, in the services space, we have the project development technologies that are being put in place. How do we actually innovate the way we're managing forests, how we are restoring forests, how do we do that using drone technology, etc.? You see a lot of these companies taking existing data or enhancing existing data, processing it and using that to create scalable solutions for how to analyze ecosystems and process that into either decision-making capabilities or decision recommendations when it comes to either how we enhance from a carbon sequestration perspective or biodiversity perspective, or even as a validation verification body type solution. There's no question in my mind that we are in a space where the investments are just going to continue to grow. We think this space is going to grow with an average cake of 30 to 40%. And we're actually in a situation where we think we are going to have what we call sustainability scarcity. We think we are going to run out of supply initiatives because there is this lag. I mean, it takes seven years to grow a tree in a way where it starts to mature its sequestration process and agricultural process. So the pressure is on. It absolutely is. After all, we're all part of this one biosphere. So time for us all to act. Sustainability Inc. is a Boston Consulting Group podcast produced by Fortune Brand Studio without the participation of the Fortune editorial staff. Join us next time when we dive into the race to decarbonise power and electrify entire industries.